want to draw your attention this morning to uh, the sermon notes page. And while you're doing that, you can turn your Bibles to the book of Joshua. There's a sermon notes page that has a quick summary and uh, an outline and some points. There's also a little map there. I know most Bibles have maps, but if yours doesn't or if you don't have a Bible today, uh, there are some Bibles in the pews that you can take for yourself. They're uh, for you to have. That little map will just kind of help you as uh, you think about uh, the promised land and the tribes and where things are happening. I'm not going to mention all these details, but uh, from time to time you might want to, you can hear the references and kind of figure out where people are at and, and what's going on. Uh, we return this morning then to our uh, series from creation to Christ to consummation. Uh, we're going through the Bible book by book to help us know the word better. Uh, why do we want to know the word better? Because these words this morning in Joshua are the self-revelation of the eternal word made flesh. We've just celebrated that in the season of Advent and uh, the Christmas season, the celebration of the birth of the Son of God in human flesh. The words of God are his own self-revelation. This is how he uh, makes himself known. And so knowing the word is to know Jesus better. Knowing the word is to know Jesus better. If you uh, follow me on social media, you saw this week I interacted with this, uh, this uh, video by this insane human being uh, wh- who had the title on his TikTok video, Christ says keep away from the Bible. A couple of you, a couple of you saw that. Christ says keep away from the Bible. Jesus Christ says to know him who is the word, we have to know his words. Amen. We can't know Christ unless we know who he is as he's revealed himself to us in the word. Without the books that make up what we call the Bible, we would have no knowledge of Jesus. We couldn't know him. We wouldn't even be able to say that Christ says, as this person said, keep away from the Bible. How can you say that? How do you know that? We only know Christ as he reveals himself to us in his word. And he tells us in those words while he was on this earth that he is the center of them all. Didn't he say that somewhere? Beginning with Moses and the Psalms and the prophets, he showed himself in them to his disciples that he was to be the one who was suffering and who was raised from the dead. And so Christ is the theme. Christ is what the Bible is all about. And we come to our, uh, in our little not so little uh, summary of the Bible and survey of the Bible to the book of Joshua. And it picks up where Numbers and Deuteronomy left off. Recall a few weeks ago, we we left off in Deuteronomy where uh, this generation that was born out in the wilderness, they had wandered with their parents, their parents all died for their unbelief, And they came to the precipice of the promised land that God had made to Father Abraham. That's where we're at then in Joshua. That generation that came out of Egypt has died. All their sons and daughters and presumably some grandsons and granddaughters have been born and they are at the edge of the promised land just waiting to go in to receive the promise that their father Abraham received from the Lord. Now, in our English Bibles, if you have your little table of contents or you're just re- looking through, uh, Joshua is the first of the so-called historical books, from Joshua through Esther. And uh, we think of the historical books that might conjure up images of uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off in our mind, 
uh, Ben Stein's character, Bueller, anyone, anyone, Bueller, right? <laughs> All of you who are younger have no idea what Ferris Bueller's Day Off is. You've missed out in life, trust me. <laughs> the Hebrew Bible, though, gives us a better sense of, you know, what's going on here with Joshua. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, first and second, Kings, first and second. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. These are the, uh, the, the so-called former prophets, the former prophets. And as prophetical writings, they are proclaiming the faithfulness of the Lord. The God who's revealed himself in the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, he's now showing his faithfulness by sending the Israelites into the promised land through Joshua, just as he told Moses, just as he told the Israelites, just as he told them in, in Egypt, and as he told them way before that to Father Abraham. He's showing his faithfulness, but also these prophetical books, historical books, they're also showing us how the Lord is even prosecuting, we might say, any of the unfaithfulness of his people. Just keep it in mind, because next Sunday, we, Lord willing, we'll come to Judges, uh, and if you know the book of Judges, it's nothing but a downer. So uh, there's, a, there's a lot of faithfulness in Joshua, a lot of unfaithfulness in Judges. Now, this book, Joshua, really, uh, what's, what's really amazing about it and really cool about it, uh, uh, it's called Sefer Yehoshua, uh, is the Hebrew title, the book of Joshua. Uh, and that Hebrew word, Yehoshua, is the Lord of salvation. That's what it means, the Lord of salvation, Yehoshua. The translators of the Hebrew Bible into Greek, that's called the Septuagint, they gave it the name Jesus, Jesus. Yehoshua, the Lord of salvation, is translated into Greek as Jesus, which we translate in English as Jesus. Why? Remember what we read on Christmas Eve. You shall call his name what? What do the angels say to Joseph and to Mary? You shall call his name Jesus, Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Yehoshua, the Lord of salvation. That Lord was being born. That's what we celebrated on Christmas. The author of the Hebrews, in fact, picks up on this, this, uh, this uh, 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 typology between Joshua and Jesus, Yehoshua and Jesus, when Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4, 8, if Joshua, if Jesus, had given them rest, if Jesus had given them rest, back then there would have been no need for another day of rest. We'll come to that in just a bit. The Jesus he's speaking of there is Joshua. But we know the Jesus who does give us rest. And so we, we come to Joshua this morning. The big idea of Joshua is that the Lord fulfills his covenantal promise to Father Abraham, Genesis 12, for example, 1 through 3, by giving his descendants the promised land of rest. The Lord fulfills his covenanted promise to Father Abraham by giving Abraham's descendants the promised land of rest. And so we see in a, in a, in a, in a historical book what we sing in one of our hymns, Great is thy faithfulness. This book celebrates the faithfulness of the Lord, it's proclaiming that as a prophetical book. The faithfulness of God. Great is thy faithfulness. And so Israel is given rest. And we're going to trace this idea, this word of rest. It occurs many times throughout the book. It traces the rest that God gave. But we're going to see there's something even more than that rest. 
So just notice on the outline there, uh, just quickly to summarize chapters 1 to the first part of chapter 5, as they cross into the land, crossing into the land, that's where we begin. And so chapter 1 of Joshua uh, is a chapter in which the Lord confirms Joshua as the new Moses to lead the people of God into the promised land of rest. Look at verse 5, for example. Notice how Moses and Joshua are paralleled. As I was with Moses, the Lord says, so I will be with who? You. Who's the you? Joshua. So there's a parallel between Moses and Joshua. As I was with him, so I will be with you. So notice that. How did the Lord equip Joshua for being the leader like Moses to bring the Israelites past the Jordan River into the promised land to give them all that God had promised them to Father Abraham? How did God equip him for that? His presence, his own presence, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Notice that the presence of God is what equips Joshua as a leader. And so uh, to our seminary students, I've got to say, practice the presence of God. That's a, that's a famous book from the 20th century, but practice the presence of God. Know God. We can't lead people unless we know the Lord, unless he's with us and we are with him. Uh, This was the Lord's promise of his own presence to Isaac, for example, Genesis 26. Moses, Exodus 3, at at the mountain where the burning bush was. God has been promising his own presence all throughout. Remember when Moses said in the book of Exodus after they had made the the, the golden calf and the Lord said, I'm going to wipe everybody out and I'm going to start over just with you, Moses. Moses pleads, the Lord relents. And then the Lord says, okay, Moses, fine. You guys all go up to the promised land. I'm going to stay back here. That's what the Lord said. What did Moses say? Lord, if you do not go up with us, this is foolishness. And the Lord then went along with them. The presence of God, so, so important. We see that throughout the the Old Testament. We see it in the New as well. And for us, we must know the Lord. We must be in his presence And notice as they go and prepare to to enter the land, note how the the Jordan River, verse 2, the Jordan River is this boundary line, this dividing line between wilderness and wandering, 40 years, and the promises of God. It's it's a boundary line. Go over this Jordan. We're going to sing in in just a, or or we usually sing uh, uh, in in that wonderful hymn, uh, this line or this phrase, when I tread the verge of Jordan, Bid my anxious fear subside. Death of death and hell's destruction. Land me safe on Canaan's side. So this this idea of Jordan being a boundary marker between wilderness and promised land, it's even for us as Christians a, a literary device for us to think about life and death, this life and the life that is to come. Notice the boundaries in verse four. Notice the boundaries. From the wilderness all the way in the south, to the great river Euphrates, all the way up to the north, to the land of the Hittites, to the east, to the great sea, that's the Mediterranean, all the way to the west. Those are the boundary markers here, verse 4. And what's interesting is if we go back and we read over things that we probably forget on first or second or third or fourth or fifth reading, uh, Genesis 15, the Lord had already given the boundary markers of the promised land. From the Nile River, in Egypt, all the way to the, to the river Euphrates, and everything in between. That's what Genesis 15 says. All this land is yours. In fact, 
Nine times in chapter 1, we read the Lord giving, giving, Natan, giving the land to the Israelites. The Lord gives it as a gift, as a, as a manifestation of his grace. He's made the verbal promise, and now he's going to keep it and give and show his grace in the promised land. Look at verses 12 through 15. The Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh. In the days of Moses, they had already had their land allotted to them. They wanted to live on the east side of the Jordan River for their own reasons. And so the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, they settled in what's called the Transjordan, that is east of the Jordan. But they promised Moses, back in Deuteronomy, that they would fight alongside the rest of the tribes, verse 15 tells us here, until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. So they already have their rest, notice. But others haven't yet received it. Verse, 15, uh, verse 13, notice, and also verse 15 again, the Lord speaks of providing you a place of rest. Again, verse 15, until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. There's this, uh, as one commentator says, an air of joyful optimism in, jo in Joshua. Some have rest already, others are about to get it, and they're all going to go in together. The sense of, of entering what God has been promising for generation upon generation, all of our hopes and dreams are invested in this land, and now we get it. So what's the rest? What's the rest that he's speaking about? Let me just, I'm going to give you a hint, and we're going to come to it as we trace through. But back in Deuteronomy 12 and Deuteronomy 25, and then a little bit later in Joshua, Joshua 21, Joshua 23, so Deuteronomy and Joshua, tell us that the land itself was the rest. The land itself was the rest. So just sort of mental mark that, note that down. We're going to come back to that. The land is the rest. Now in chapter 2, the Lord assures Israel of their promised victory. And so Joshua does a little bit of, of, of a recon mission. He, he sends two spies to go into Jericho to spy it out. So the, notice this, chapter 1, the Lord says nine times, I'm going to give the land to you. Chapter 2, Joshua then takes two spies, tells them to go in, spy out Jericho, report back. Is Joshua showing a lack of faith here? Think about that. The Lord says nine times, and we, we think saying something twice to our kids, or maybe even three times is overkill, right? That's really reiterating something. But nine times, I am giving you this land. And then Joshua's answer is, two spies go in, see what's up, come back and tell me how we're going to take care of business here. Was it a lack of faith? I would say no. I would say no, because God uses the means of his people. He, sure, he could have just literally gave them the land, but he uses his people. And Joshua learned this strategy already from Moses. If it was kosher for Moses, it's got to be kosher for Joshua, right? But remember, how many spies did Moses send in? Kids, you know this. Your parents forget, but you know this. How many spies did Moses send into the promised land? Twelve, yeah. One from each tribe, right? They all go in. And when they came back and gave a report about the land, how many spies said, let's do it, let's go. The Lord's given it to us, it's ours. 
two. Do you remember who they were? Caleb and Joshua, right? Caleb and Joshua. Isn't it interesting now that, Mo, that, that Joshua only sends in two? Only sends in two because two were faithful. He and Caleb. He sends in two in that it promised land to give a report. Now, they go in, and if we know the story, and if you're glancing down, if you had a chance to read ahead of time, perhaps, one of the things that's kind of off in the story is the holy people of God, these two holy men, these spies, they do a recon into, the, into, into Jericho, but where do they go? Where did they go? They spied out Jericho. Where did they stay that night? They stayed at a prostitute's house. Now, that seems really off and strange. I would hope that you as a people of God, if the Lord ever takes me away from you, and uh, you call another pastor, and uh, he comes to town, and he's going to preach for you and visit and so forth, but he stays at a prostitute's house that night, I would hope that you would probably have the good sense to say, well, probably not the smartest thing to do, okay? At least say that, right? Now, that's probably the only place they could have stayed back in those days. They're, they're, they're sort of you know, incognito. They're spying. And so you don't want to draw attention to yourself. So, yeah, there's something off about it. It seems strange that they are doing this. Uh, but, like I said, it's probably the only place that they, that they could have actually stayed. And then Rahab, this harlot, this prostitute, she lies when they find out, the city people find out about these spies. They, they go around, they find out that, you know, she's, that they've stayed at this prostitute's house. And then she lies about them being there. So that seems off, too, that she lies, knowing that God has said all throughout uh, the scriptures that lying is a sin. Yes, she lied. Okay? She did lie. Uh, but she also was protecting life. She wasn't going to be an accessory to murder. Uh, and in the redemptive plan of God, we've seen this already, all the way back to Father Abraham. He takes a handmaiden to make the promise of God come a little bit quicker. He, he lies about his wife being a sister, which, she, of course, you know, she is a, she is a, re, a relative. Uh, but he lies about it to the Pharaoh. He lies about it to Abimelech. God uses sinners, loved ones, to accomplish his purpose. When people say, you know, I can't become a Christian, I can't join the church, too many hypocrites. What's our answer to that? Yes. Join the club. Join the club of redeemed sinners, hypocrites, saved by grace. And so God uses a sinner and even her sin to further his plan. Uh, and so that's why Hebrews 11 can say that it was by faith that she hid the spies. Because you read the story, she's heard about the Exodus, the Red Sea. She's heard about all the promises of God. She believes. She fears the Lord. Her fellow Jerichoites are afraid of the Lord. She fears the Lord. Remember that. We've mentioned that before. The distinction between fear and Fear, being afraid and reverencing, honoring, respecting the Lord. She honors and respects the Lord. Now, before I move on, let me just mention one bit uh, to point us back uh, all the way forward to the New Testament. Don't forget who Rahab is. Sure, she's a prostitute. Sure, she's a faithful woman who trusts the Lord, and she and her household are saved when Jericho is toppled. But who also is she? Sure, she's a, she's a Gentile. She's a Gentile. How does she, like, why does it matter that Rahab's in the Bible? How does she relate to us as Christians? She's one of the great grandmothers of Jesus. Do you, do you know that? Do you, do you realize that, loved ones? 
that Rahab the harlot, a Gentile, not a Jew, a Gentile, a harlot, a liar, one who engages in immorality, is a great-grandmother of your Savior. Go read Matthew 1. Look at the genealogy. Matthew gives a genealogy that points all the way from Abraham all the way down to David, all the way down to Jesus. And who's in the genealogy? We have Rahab. The Lord loves sinners. Jesus saves sinners. God is seeking sinners. Amen? In Joshua 3, the Lord continues to demonstrate his covenant faithfulness. He brings Israel across the Jordan to give them the land. And to do that, the Ark of the Covenant goes first. What's so important about the Ark of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant? Again, it is the presence of God in tangible form. The presence of God, again, is amongst them. And what is so significant about the priest carrying the ark ahead of the people? The, the ark goes first into the Jordan River before everybody else crosses. Why is that so important? The Lord was telling Joshua and all the people of God that I am the one who is leading you. I'm the one who's going in first. And how would they know that the living God is among you, as the passage describes? How would they know that the living God is among you. The ark goes in. God goes in. And he causes a little mini Red Sea. The Jordan River, like the Red Sea, is parted in two. They cross on dry land. Don't forget again what the New Testament tells us. In Jude, a little epistle of Jude, verse number five. It's only got one chapter. It's verse five. It says that Jesus led Israel up out of Egypt. And here is Jesus, Joshua, Jesus. Here is Jesus now leading the Israelites into the promised land. How do they know the Lord's among them? The ark. What was the ark? It was the visible presence of God. Who sat on the ark like a throne? Jesus, before he's born. Jesus. In Joshua 4, the Lord visibly signifies that he's been faithful in the past to assure Israel that he's going to be faithful in the future. And so 12 men, representing each tribe, each take a stone on their way up out of the Jordan River, and they take those stones and they place them in the town called Gilgal, the place called Gilgal, and they make a little memorial stone, a little, a little stack of stones. And then Joshua himself takes 12 stones out uh, of uh, the land, and he places them back into the Jordan, again as a memorial stone. These stones were the sacraments, the sign of the Lord's deliverance and faithfulness. The stones in the Jordan were pointing backward to the Red Sea, and the stones in Gilgal were pointing forward to his faithfulness coming in the land. And notice in chapter 4, when did all this happen? When did all this happen? Look at verse number 19, for example. When did all this stuff happen? The tenth day the first month. Why is that so important? If we've been reading through the Old Testament so far, we, if we mark up these things, we learn these things, this was the first day of the Passover celebration, all the way back in Exodus chapter number 12. And so Joshua is being connected all the way back to the first Passover in Exodus chapter number 
12. So the Lord is proclaiming. Notice that. The Lord's proclaiming his name and his victory and his promises. And Israel is celebrating all this promise and all this victory of God through sacramental stones. And all these things are happening. The proclaiming of God, the message of God, and the sacramental signs, the stones of the Israelites. All these things were taking place as a witness. Look at verse 24 of chapter 4. Why was all this happening? That all the peoples of the earth may know. Proclamation and celebration. Preaching and sacraments. This was all going on that all the earth may know. This is what you do, brothers and sisters. This is what we do when we come together. Doesn't the Apostle Paul tell us, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. You see, already all, all the way back there, all the way, way back when, God was already showing us the pattern of the word of the sacraments. Preaching and sacraments, preaching and signs are the ways in which we show not just ourselves, but the world that the Lord is real. That the, all the people of the earth may know. Because as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup of the Lord's Supper, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. His death for what? For sinners. As you hear the word today, as you, as you see the sacrament, even if you're not even a believer, you see what we're doing here today, that you might know and believe in him. The Lord then ends this exodus and this 40 years of wilderness wandering in chapter 5, the first part of chapter 5, uh, and then he begins his conquest in chapter 5. The big question is, why was this generation not circumcised? There's a big circumcision celebration going on here. Why was this generation not circumcised by their parents back in the wilderness? Verse 5. Unbelief. Unbelief. Now, this is really important. If you go back to Genesis 17, when God gave circumcision, I read that passage last Sunday as we celebrated Christ's circumcision. Back in Genesis 17, verse 14, the Lord told Abraham to circumcise himself, his son Isaac, and all those in his household, whether they were from his own household, from his own body, his own family, and even servants who were from the outside. Everyone, every male who was eight days old must be circumcised. And the one who is not circumcised, what happens to him? Cut off from the people of God. What does that mean to be cut off? Cursed. Severed separated. Isn't that interesting? For a whole generation, this generation is, technically speaking, cut off. Their parents were all circumcised. They didn't believe. Their children weren't circumcised. They are the ones, at least many of which, believe. Notice that. And so the holy God is going to send his holy people into the holy land, but yet they're Technically speaking, and ritually speaking, they're not holy yet. So what do they do? Snip, snip, right? <laughs> Circumcision. They do it, and they, they have to wait around until they're all healed. They have to be ritually pure to enter the promised land. And it's on that day, we read in chapter 5, the manna ceased. The manna ceased. The Lord would no longer provide the miracle of daily bread from heaven. Instead, he was going to provide for their daily bread, their daily needs, through the ordinary means of their own hands. 
The psalmist prayed generations later, you caused plants for man to cultivate that he might bring forth food from the earth. No more manna from heaven, the bread now comes from the earth. And so that brings us to the second thing, the, the taking the land. I promise the second, first two points will be fast. Uh, will be the longest, the last two points will be really quick. Israel takes the land, and it all begins with a very strange account in chapter 5, again, verse 14. This account of the commander of the army of the Lord. Who is he? Who is he? You're already getting the hint here, right? A lot of Jesus here in the Old Testament. Who is he? Now, the text says in verse 13, he's a man. But then look at verse 13. He has a drawn sword in his hand. So they're going to go into the promised land. There's a man standing there with a drawn sword. Sound familiar? They're going to go into the land of promise that's described as a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that is described like the Garden of Eden. And there's somebody there blocking the path with the flame or with the, guard, with the, with the sword in his hand. Does that sound familiar to you? Genesis 3. God sends Adam and Eve east of Eden, places a cherubim right there, a cherub uh, with a flaming sword in his hand that goes back and forth. No access, right? No entrance. No trespass. And so, Joshua then asks this commander of the Lord's army, this man with the sword in his hand, whose side are you on? The commander says, no one's side. Strange, isn't it? Verse 14, he's the commander of the, Lord, of the Lord's armies. You see, his role in the confrontation is a spiritual role. While the battle rages on earth, there's something going on in the spiritual realm, it seems. And look at Joshua's response to what this commander says, that he's on no one's side, the army of the Lord, uh, the commander of the armies of the Lord. Verse 14, he falls down and he worships. He falls down and he worships. Human beings and even angels in the Bible who know their place before God never, ever accept the worship of human beings. People and angels all throughout the Bible who know their place before God refuse worship. The apostle John himself, who saw Christ, who lived with Jesus for three long years, when an angel appeared to him, he fell upon his, face, uh, on his hands and, uh, and, and, and his knees and his face. And the angel said, get up. What are you doing? Does this commander refuse Joshua? He doesn't. And we know that he doesn't because look at his response in verse 15. Take off your sandals. For the place where you're standing is holy. Again, does that sound familiar to you? That sounds just a little bit like Moses at, Mount, at, at, at the mountain of God with the burning bush, doesn't it? <laughs> just a little bit. Just a little bit, Exodus, Exodus 3, verse 5. So who is he? This is the Lord before his incarnation. This is the Lord before his incarnation. And then in Joshua 6, the Lord continues to demonstrate his covenant faithfulness, delivering Jericho to Joshua. They barricade themselves in the city. They prepare for a siege. No doubt the Israelites didn't even have siege engines and, and ways to topple down walls. They knew this, and so they all went into the city, closed the walls up, and so forth. But what did they have? What did they have for a weapon? The commander of the Lord. Kind of a big deal, right? As Ron Burgundy said. Kind of a big deal. The commander of the Lord's armies. And what's the strategy, commander? Tell us what to do, and we'll do it. 
Okay, here's the strategy. Everybody, you're going to process around the city one time for six days. Day one, day two, all the way to day six. The Ark of the Covenant's going to go around with you. There's going to be shofars, these ram's horns blaring and blowing, but you're going to be quiet. They're going to hear the ram sounds and probably hear the, and feel the, the shaking of feet on the ground, but be silent. Do that once a day for six days. On the seventh day, you're going to do that seven times. And after you reach the seventh circuit around the city, the sound is going to go out really, really loud, and you're all going to do what? You're going to shout. And the walls that are before you that you can't topple are going to fall down. What? Seriously? That's the strategy? This is utter foolishness. It is. 100%. It's foolishness. Because the point is not a matter of human works or wisdom, but of God. His divine work as commander of the heavenly armies, he is going to do this work for them. Notice that. That's the gospel, loved ones. That's the gospel. It's foolishness to those who want wisdom and it's foolishness to those who want signs. But the gospel, Paul tells us, is foolishness. It looks like weakness, but that's why it's the power and the wisdom of God. And so this foolish strategy works because it's God's strategy. Now, the question for you and for me, we read a, a chapter like this, and a lot of times we can read this and we can make all kinds of wild speculations and all kinds of really, really interesting modern American uh, uh, applications. Do we as Christians engage in holy war? That's what this was. The language of devoted to destruction is holy war. Do we engage in holy war, brothers and sisters, as Christians? The answer is yes, right? But we always got to qualify and we always got to nuance and understand where we are at in the history of God's work as opposed to Joshua in his day and age. Yes, we engage in holy war. Here's the difference. It's not by might. It's not by power, but by the Spirit of the Lord. What does that mean? Our actions of holy war are not to surround a city and to march and to make really loud noises and be like protesters and even engage in all kinds of violent activities to overthrow and to, and to bring in and usher in our kingdom of God. No. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The best thing you as an individual and the best thing, more importantly, the best thing that we as a congregation, as a, as a particular church of Jesus Christ on this earth, the best thing that we can offer to the so-called culture war, the best thing that we can offer. Get this, loved ones. Get this today. I've said it like five times already. The best thing that you can offer, right, is what? It's to worship the Lord. It's to pray. It's to worship. It's to preach. It's to celebrate sacraments. It's to come together. It's to be Christians. To be Christians. I, I, as your pastor, you, you know this. I do not care what party you belong to and who you vote for. I don't care. That's not, my, that's not for me to know that. We're Americans. We live, in, we live in, the, in this country. We believe in the secret ballot. It doesn't matter who you vote for. It doesn't matter what party you belong to. What matters is that you're a Christian. That you're a Christian. 
that you pray, that you worship, that you read the word, that you hear the word, that you celebrate sacraments, that you come together as a people of God. That is the most important thing we can do in our world. That's, that's foolish, Pastor. You know, we've we got to get engaged. You know. Pastor, we've got to rally. We've got to do the things that everyone else is doing. I think this is what we've got to do. You can disagree with me, but this is what we've got to do. The, the thing that is going to change a person's heart and mind and turn their life around is not vote against this proposition, vote for this politician, vote against him, vote, vote for her, whatever. No, the most important thing we can do is to preach the gospel to save their soul. Their mind is going to come around and be changed and they're going to start to see the world as God sees the world. And yes, that's going to have effects in the city of man. We're going to be, be reading Augustine here pretty soon, men. That's going to have effects and it's going to have influence and impact in our world. It's going to cause the, our city, our state, our country to be more godly. It's going to cause less abortions. It's going to mean less and less of the idiocy of the, and the lunacy of the LGBTQ uh, uh, virus. That's a mind virus. We know this. But we have to start with Christ. We've got to start with Christ. So they did that because that's what God said. God tells us to do this. Do this. And so he gives the land. He starts giving cities over to them. He even, in chapter 10, for example, he even causes, the text tells us, the sun to stand still. They battle against this king by the name of Adonai Zedek. The Lord, uh, my Lord is just. My Lord is righteousness. That's, that's what his name means. My Lord is just. My Lord is righteousness. That's the irony. He's fighting against the Lord. <laughs> Who is Adonai? Who is the Lord? Who is Zedek? Who is righteousness itself and justice itself? And the Lord even causes the sun to stand still. Did the sun stand still? Did it actually, did it really stand still for a whole day so that they could battle and win that victory that day? Was the tomb really empty? Did God actually say, and, and it was in the beginning? Absolutely. If the Lord can make everything, I think the Lord can manipulate the laws of physics and science and do his thing, can't he? The Lord caused the sun to stand still. How? We don't know. But he did. And they won. And God showed himself to be faithful. And he gave them rest, we read in chapter 11 and 12. The land, verse 23 of chapter 11, the land had rest from war. The land had rest from war. Notice how significant that is. He not only was promising rest, chapter 11, verse 23 again, but now he's giving the rest what was it again? Verse 23, the land, the land notice, had rest from war. Again, the land and the rest are associated together, but it, in this context, it's rest from war. At least we'll see temporarily. And then in the latter part of the book, we just quickly, wanna, I want to trace that theme of rest, but to say this, that in chapter 13 to 21, they are beginning to allot all the territories uh, that are uh, uh, west of the Jordan River, some, uh, some already had rest, we saw. They already had their land east of the river. But now they go in. 
but they've got to fight battles to do so. So chapter 11, verse 23, the, the land had rest from war, was up to that point it had rest. Chapter 13, verse 13, we read this, that Israel never dispossessed their enemies and never possessed the land as God had promised it, with all the boundary markers and so forth. In fact, later on in 1 Kings, we read this very thing. All these peoples, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, etc., etc., they were left in the land. They were unable, we read, to devote them to destruction. We read about Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, the tribe of Manasseh, chapter 16, chapter 17, that they were not able to drive out the Canaanites and so forth. The land, verse 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 50, the land had rest from war. Again, that, that phrase again. So the rest, so far, we're seeing that it's a temporal rest. It had rest from war up to that point. And it's sort of a geographical rest. You know, in certain areas they had rest. In certain parts they had some temporal rest. But then we read this in chapter 21, verse 44. This sort of all-encompassing promise. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. So if there are still places to go in the land to fight battles and to dispossess enemies and to receive the land, why does the author so heavily emphasize this sort of all-encompassing fulfillment of God's promises? And how does that fit with what he said to Father Abraham, that all this land from the Nile River in Egypt to the Euphrates would be theirs? We're beginning to see something here, that the Lord was giving them some temporal, geographical rest that was appropriate to their time and place in the history of salvation. But there was more to come, you see. There's more to come. When you read these verses together, you get the sense that, yes, God is keeping his word. God is keeping his promises, 100%. But there's something more about what he said. There's got to be something more about his promise than just the tangible land. Because they have rest, but it seems like they don't. So there's got to be something more significant to what's going on here. And then we get into the last couple of chapters, and... Uh, chapter 22 opens up with a scene of uh, the tribes whose allotments are on the east. And they go back to their lands, right? The, all the people of God meet and they, they've won some battles. There's some temporal, geographical rest. And the, the three tribes on the east boundary, they, they go back to their land. 22 verse 4 says, And the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. But then they build this altar and they almost cause a civil war and eventually they avert war because it wasn't meant to sacrifice. It was only meant to be like a memorial stone of the real place of sacrifice in Shiloh, in the promised land. Again, chapter 23 speaks of this accomplishment of rest when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies. 23 verse 1. But then Joshua, this is why, why it's so interesting, Right? There's rest, but there's not quite rest. All the land is theirs, but yet there's still enemies in the land. They've got rest from all their enemies, but yet they've got to go fight battles still. Right? 
Joshua then goes on to exhort Israel in chapter 23 to be faithfully obedient to the Lord. Verse 6, to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Verse 8, to cling to the Lord. Verse 10, to love the Lord. But again, if, if there are still lands for Israel to take, why is Joshua so emphasizing this totality of fulfillment that God has given rest? So let me just mention in closing these two images of land and rest. So what's going on here? There's conquest and there's rest. But why is it that there's rest but there's not rest? It seems contradictory. The land. The land. Genesis 15 again. The promise to Abraham was of, a, of Abram was this huge, vast, promised land. The Nile in Egypt, Euphrates, all the way in modern-day Iraq. But Israel never actually possessed that expanse of land. So what do we make of that? Well, here's where, as I've been calling him, Rabbi Saul, the Apostle Paul, Here's where Rabbi Saul's insight is so penetrating in Romans chapter 4. Romans 4, just write it down, you can read it later. Romans 4. Paul says, Saul says, that Abraham was an heir of the cosmos. Abraham wasn't just the heir of the promised land. He was an heir of the entire cosmos, the entire world. What is Paul saying there? What he's saying is this. That the land of Canaan and even the big boundaries that God had given and that they had never actually received. The land of Canaan was a type, a picture. It was a little bit of a down payment. It was a small little foretaste of the entire world that one day would be possessed. And so ultimately the promised land given to Abram reiterated the Israelites, and now that Joshua goes in and various tribes are getting some rest, they're dispossessing their enemies, they're getting some, uh, some, some promised land, some land that flows with milk and honey. Ultimately, though, this is what's true. The promised land was just a little down payment on this earth of a new heavens and a new earth, Revelation 21. The land of promise was never meant to be an end-all and a be-all, it was meant to be a down payment, as Romans 4 says, to Abraham of the entire cosmos, the entire world. And we read about that in the end of our Bibles. A new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells, where there are gates that bar access, metaphorically, to the unholy, the unclean unbelievers. It's a place that is totally possessed by the Lord because He is the light, He's the temple, and by His people. The land then. The land, then, is meant to be a picture of a new heavens and a new earth. Again, just to be, I guess I've got to be political. I've already let the cat out of the bag. This is, not, this is not a manual for us on how to conquer America, okay? There's a, you've probably seen that, that, uh, that American Bible. It's like the, there's all the theme Bibles out there, the youth Bible, the women's Bible. There's like a constitution Bible, and it's got the American flag on it, and you know, all the quotes from the founding fathers and so forth. This is not a manual for how we are to go into the land and, and make it our own, no. The promised land, even in modern-day Israel, is only a little postage stamp of the entire thing. That's what God is going to give to his people, ultimately, 
a new heavens and new earth. What about rest, though? What about rest? Again, Deuteronomy and Joshua say that the land was the rest, but yet they never actually possessed all the land fully, and they never actually stopped being at war. Joshua describes this. We're going to see judges next Sunday. Not only are they fighting among, not only are they going to war, they are being warred against. And eventually we read prophets like Ezekiel that we're reading in our Old Testament readings, and they are attacked. Their temple is destroyed, their land is razed, and they are sent away packing into exile. So there's, there's war, there's unrest. But yet Joshua says that there's rest. But then the Bible tells us this in Psalm number 95. Psalm number 95, in the days of David, that there was still a rest for the people of God. So if Joshua had given them rest in the book of Joshua, in the story of Joshua, why then does Psalm number 95, multiple generations later, say that there's still rest, people of God. There's still rest for you. Believe. Don't be hard-hearted. Believe and receive rest. It's because that rest was a, just a picture, a down payment, a small little sampling of that greater rest that was to come. And that's why Hebrews 3 and 4 tells us that we who have believed enter God's rest. God made all things in six days, then he rested. Then the Bible talks about rest all throughout the Bible, but yet there's, there's never a finality to that. The finality comes when the one who is the Lord came and he said, come to me all who labor and who are heavy laden, I will give you rest. We who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have already entered the rest of God. Not physical rest, not where we live, not in our car, not in a palatial mansion. No, our rest is of our mind, our soul, our heart, our entire life. We rest in Christ. We who have believed, notice that. We who have believed have already entered into this rest. And if you have rest now, that's a down payment to you of the full rest that is to come in the very presence of Almighty God. Not just in heaven, but the ultimate, the new heavens and the new earth. When the Lord himself will take us to be his people and this earth will be like a garden, even greater than Eden. And we will be in that place, resting, enjoying, reveling, in the good news that Jesus Christ has saved us of all people. And so the Lord comes to us today, and again, he says to us that this land and this rest was only a little temporary picture of a greater thing to come. We have that greater thing. We have that greater thing in Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus Christ. Find rest for your soul today. Don't delay. Don't wait. Come to him today. And as we as believers come to this table of the Lord, we come to receive, again, a little sacramental sign of the rest that we already have, but that we're waiting for. Because Jesus tells us that he will no longer eat of this meal until he comes again in his kingdom. And it's for that day that we lift up our hearts and souls today. Let's pray. Our great and our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for blessing us with your son Jesus, who is this great Lord of the Old Testament, who's come in human flesh. Grant to us rest, we pray, in our souls and minds. And as we come to the Lord's table, may it assure us of that everlasting rest that is already ours. And Lord, help us to share this rest, this news of rest,
that only you can give. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. And together all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. Let's turn together and sing from our uh, red hymnal. I believe the number is like 530. Is that right, George?